Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. And we have a really great guest today. Her name is Krista Couture. I hope I said that right, did I? Oh, good. I love that name. And I was actually really excited to say it because Couture is such a really fancy name. So Krista's here today to talk about loss grief and loss, which is a subject that I am very familiar with. And I do talk about quite a bit on the podcast. Um, It's something that has deeply touched my life. And Krista has experienced it as well. She wrote a book about it. And just like me, um, and she's walked a little bit of a different grief journey and loss journey than I have. Um, But I'm really excited to talk to Krista about some different things in her life as well. So welcome, Krista. Thank you. So Krista's from Toronto. Well, she's from Canada. She's living in Toronto now. And uh, Krista, I wanted to just, I wanted you to just tell us a little bit about your journey and what brings you into into our world right now. Tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Well, yes, I'm based in Toronto now, though I grew up in Edmonton in the prairies, lived in Vancouver on the West Coast for 17 years. Uh, I'm a writer, musician, and a broadcaster. I'm also queer and uh, disabled. I'm Indigenous, I'm mixed Korean, Scandinavian, and I'm a mom. And my book is called How to Lose Everything. It's a book about loss and I sometimes talk about that book or, you know, who I am <laughs> through my, what I call my grief bio, which is uh, cancer, amputation, death, death, divorce, more cancer, mm-hmm. which like as a, as a bullet list is, is a lot. Of course, that's been spread out over some years, <laughs> not all at once. Um, but I, I used that list almost as like my book outline. I kind of zoomed into what each of those losses was like for me. Um, And a little bit more about those is that um, I was diagnosed with bone cancer when I was 11. And my left leg was amputated above the knee when I was 13 as the cure for my cancer. And so I was was very lucky. Um, And of course, it was a a big loss, a major adjustment. And and then my first son died as a newborn uh, when I was in my 20s. And my second son died when he was 14 months old after a very difficult year living with a, a congenital heart defect. And then my marriage ended after that. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I moved across the country to pick up the pieces and start over. And then I got thyroid cancer, which put my uh, my career as a, a musician and a singer-songwriter on hold. And at that point, I just kind of went, well, gosh, <laughs> just need to sit down because it right. became too much. Um, and it was actually in that kind of taking a break from it all that I decided to try and write about it. <laughs> but that's that's a snapshot of of where I where I'm coming from um, with loss and disability. Well, I can say that so many of us are glad that you took that breath and wrote that book because I know it's kind of weird to say, but it's a beautiful book in and of itself. I mean, um, I know it's so hard for people to actually talk about loss in that way. And, um, but it's important. It's so important for us to be able to discuss it openly and honestly, and in, in a raw way too, because it's the only way that we heal and move forward in life. And 
I love the way that you talk about it. I love the way that you talk about it in your walrus talks, which is like our like our TED talks. Yeah. <laughs> so the Krista, Canadian version. <laughs> the Canadian version. So Krista does these walrus talks and um it it's um her walrus talk is about not um you know not getting over a loss because you don't get over a loss, but it's about, you know, sort of being okay. So Talk to us a little bit about your your take on on all of that. Yeah, my walrus talk came out of this this my shtick of of being tired of things having to get better. People talking about you know it always gets better, or you know there's um, always a silver lining, or um, there's always hope. Like these these kind of cliches or these platitudes that are maybe sometimes true. <laughs> there is sometimes hope but there really isn't always and things can't always get better. And I, I felt like as someone with a disability and also as someone who had lost two children, like this is not going to get better. And, and if, I, if I'm looking towards trying to be better, I actually feel quite defeated. Um, and so I started to think about, well, what could be different? Which for me became a, a, a kind of hope in that it, it opened up possibility of like, all right, I'm not going to, my body's not going to be the body it was. Um, my, you know, or and or my children are gone. I can't get them back. So what is next? What can be different? And what comes next? I wouldn't choose. I wouldn't say, well, that's going to be better than what I had, because nothing, nothing will be better. Like then, I wouldn't have chosen any of those experiences. Um, at the same time, I at this point, you know, I enjoy my life. I, I have a daughter. I, I love my work. There's things in my life that are so meaningful to me that wouldn't be here if I hadn't had those losses. But that's not to say, well, that makes it all worth it. This is just right. a kind of mess of life and choices and responding to the things we don't have a choice about. And I feel like culturally we have, you know, here in North America, this like, you know, good vibes only, um, uh, you know, requirement to that if you're having a hard time, it's like rude <laughs> to like, you know, potentially be a downer in the room, you know? And, and so it can be hard to say, it can be hard to speak up and say, I'm struggling or, you know, this isn't going to get better. And when people try to fix it so fast, we, we sort of are doing a disservice to like just accepting what is or being open to what could be different or, or, you know, the mystery of what might be next. And so I did that walrus talk kind of coming out of my own wrestling with that. Like, what is this messy middle where I find something new, but don't subscribe to this kind of championing of better, better, better. Right. <laughs> if that makes sense. It does. It does. Because, you know, a couple of things occurred to me as I was listening to it. First of all, I know when I was going through my grief journey, um, and I wrote about it later, looking back on it, it, it felt like being pounded all the time by the ocean. And I looked at it like I wasn't coming out the same. It was, it was going to be different, you know, different shoreline because the ocean changed me, but not worse, not better, just different, different shoreline but still me, still a shoreline, mm. just a different me. And that was okay. And the other thing that I was thinking about a lot was that 
you know, people kept saying things to me, even my doctor, like, well, you're depressed and putting some time frames on it. Like this is too long. This is too short. It should be this. It should be that. Instead of just thinking it's situational, you know, this is just situational. I'm just feeling this way because I'm grieving. I'm in this situation tied to whatever. Even recently, I felt a lot of trauma again. I was re-traumatized by everything going on with COVID. And, um, and, you know, I think everybody sort of jumped to, oh, do you need to, you know, see a psychologist? Do you need medication? Do you need, everybody just wants to fix, 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 you know? And I don't know if you experienced that, Krista, where people just, they don't want to talk to you about it. Because it's like, ah, uh, everybody gets all, you know, clumped about it. You know, like, oh, my God, I don't want to talk about it. It's sad. They just want to fix, 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 and then walk away really quickly. So do you feel that way? Do you, do you experience that? Yes, so much. And I must say, your, your, your metaphor, the image of the shoreline is so beautiful. And I think... I, I love that image because grief is, it has the force of water. It can smooth a surface or it can cut through rock. Um, it's a, a gorgeous image. I absolutely had had many, many <laughs> occasions and experiences of people's discomfort with sorrow. And I feel like there's this kind of funny trick about it because the minute people, from my experience, the minute people can just kind of accept your heartbreak or your despair or your hopelessness and just say, yeah, yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> Full stop. You do actually feel a little better. <laughs> like, right. like we, we want to be seen. We need to be heard and we need to be accepted. And we have, there's all of this resistance and discomfort around these kind of troublesome emotions, right? Even anger or, or um, rage, which can be part of loss. Um, People don't want to see it. Like we haven't been taught how to just go, oh, okay, like this sucks. You're really upset. That makes sense. Like, okay, let's just, let's go there. You know, um, I, I have this line near the end of my book where it's the closest I get to kind of giving advice. And I talk about the early days of grief um, where really you just kind of need to pass the time when you're in shock. You just need to get through it and just find something to do. And I, I say, hopefully it's something that doesn't hurt you or other people, although that might not be possible because people can get hurt in that mess of sorrow and anger. And mm -hmm. I mean, ideally that's not the case, but it's messy, right? Um, right. Yeah. When people, they, you know, they, they, they want to, not even people like humans, we want there to be meaning. We want there to be a reason. We want yes. things to be okay. And I even in myself, you know, I, I, someone will share something heartbreaking. And I find that even from my experience in my Waller's talk in my book or whatever, that I will still go, oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. Right. It's, we have this urge. We do want to, we want to help. We don't want people to suffer. That's part of it too. But I think we, yeah, we have this incredible discomfort and a lack of skill around just sitting with it, with just accepting mm -hmm. that someone's having a hard time. And that maybe it's not going to be okay. Like when someone, you know, if right. you're watching a family member who's terminally ill, like that's just really, really sad and really, really hard. That's all. Right. right. 
But in your book, you specifically steered away from too much of, you know, being an advice book. And why did you choose that? Yeah, I felt like even though I have some extraordinary experiences and have collected a number of losses, I I don't feel like I'm an expert. Like this is, Mm -hmm. I can only speak from my experience. Um, And so I wanted to share that experience in a way that was genuine and it did have some rawness to it, but was just kind of an invitation to say like, here, this is, this is my heartache. You can look at it. You don't have to touch it. Don't worry. Like, <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. your fault. Like, I, I will take care of it, but maybe it'll change or inspire or shift how you look at your own heartache or someone else's. Um, I mean, I wrote the book hoping that it, well, for two reasons. One, hoping that it would connect with other people who are in that rough terrain of of grief and are trying to find their way through it um, so that they could feel less alone and I could feel less alone. We'd see each other. And then I also wrote it for people who maybe don't know a lot about those losses yet. They probably will at some point in their life experience something, but like that it could maybe just satisfy some curiosity about these kind of experiences and potentially offer some insight that might introduce compassion for, you know, people around you. Um, that's right. I, I, and I, I get asked for advice a lot. <laughs> and I try, mm-hmm. I try to like not apply any rules because of course it, it depends. Things depend. <laughs> well, you definitely have that approachability about you. So I think that's probably why people feel like they can come <laughs> and just chat you up. So in your talk, you, you say you have this line that really struck me about how have you handled suffering in your life? And I really wanted to talk to you about that today because I think that people just take that in you know, one of two directions. I think there are those people who just, it just, you know, just breaks them. And then there are those people who it remakes them like the shoreline and it, it totally remade you. And, you know, if, if for those of you who haven't seen Krista, seen a picture of her or have read about her yet, but you will <laughs> um, tell them about the flowers because, sure. you know, that's just a perfect intro to what this means. Yeah, the flower leg, which is this kind of literal decoration, this literal celebration of of a loss. Um, I so my left leg is amputated above the knee, and I most often wear a prosthetic leg to get around. And for many years, I kept that covered. You know, I'd have the cosmesis that's sort of trying to pass um, right. <laughs> for a real leg, it never really does. Um, or I would just wear pants or, you know, and, and I, it's not that it was a secret that I was an amputee, but I just wasn't, wasn't really out in a way. It just um, wasn't comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, which is a totally fair choice. Right. Um, and I feel like in some ways I've had the privilege with my disability that I can hide it. Um, particularly if I wear pants and stand very still, <laughs> if I'm walking, people might notice my gait is different, but I, I can pass for non-disabled um, and so, but a couple of years ago, seven years ago now, I got this new 
kind of knee and it was crowdfunded and I was feeling really lifted by my community and it was this kind of incredible gift in a way. Um, and I wanted to celebrate it and I'd seen actually um, uh, a prosthesis that was hand painted with flowers by this um, mm. this group in the UK called the Alternative Limb Project that makes just amazing prosthetic limbs. And um, and I showed it to my clinic and I was like, can we do something like this? Like, is there an affordable version of this? And we laminated uh, an upholstery fabric that I found that's like this linen floral. It looks kind of like a vintage print. We laminated it onto the fiberglass. And so it's this, you know, full floral covered leg. And from the time that I got that, I started wearing, you know, shorts and short dresses and, mm-hmm. and you know, no longer hiding my leg, but actually like kind of pointing a neon sign to it and saying, look at this thing, this thing that's different about me that came from a loss, that came from yeah. cancer and the struggle and, and, you know, getting through chemotherapy and all of that. But now look how beautiful it is. This is something about me that I now at this point in my life am proud of and celebrate. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of, um, uh, that approach, I started to realize like, oh, I could maybe apply that to other areas. Like how can we kind of wear these these scars as 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 art in a way. And what I didn't anticipate is that the flower leg um, changed the conversations that I was having with other people about my disability. You know, whereas before people would say like, oh, you're limping. Did you hurt yourself? And I'd say, oh, I only have one leg. And then it was usually like, oh God, oh, sorry, sorry. You know, right. the, the, again, the discomfort. <laughs> and now people come up to me and say, wow, that's so beautiful. Like, how did it get made? Or like, how does it work? And do you mind if I ask you about it? And no one's asking me what happened or why. They're just, right. they're just curious. And I found that ended up being this kind of reaffirming loop where now I'm having these conversations where people think this thing about me is cool. And so I get to now go, oh, okay, yeah, let me tell you, which was like a, a, is a has been a confidence boost, right? Because no one's now going, oh, you're disabled. I'm so sorry, right? Now it's like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Like, let's talk about it. Um, and so it's kind of, continue to help me reframe it even for myself. You've completely changed the dynamic. Yeah. You didn't know I was going to power back. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's very interesting. And that's, you know, that goes back to that question. How have you handled the suffering in your life? And it's, you know, it goes back to a lot of the conversations that I've had on this podcast about, what have people done with their disabilities? What have people done in their life with their um, their struggles? You know, most of the people that I've been talking to have taken something like that and have turned it into a superpower or something that they have been able to bring to the community in a bigger way. So, um, you know, I've taken my journey with my daughter Elizabeth and turned it into a, a business and a community to, you know, open our arms to everybody else to share what we've learned, to bring information and to do what we can to um, just open up the world a little bit more Yeah, because I just want her legacy to live on, but also because I I want people to have a fuller life than we did when when our family was younger because we needed so much more than what we got. 
And I know that there's a better way to do all of this. So we're trying to make sure that that happens. So hence the podcast and the circle of care and all of the things that we do for everybody. So, you know, how have you handled suffering in your life? Which I will say, like, it took me time to get to that point. I mean, I'd been an amputee for 30 years or so, like, whatever it was at that point, 35. And, and, and what amazes me, like, what you're doing in your work, or even me making the flower leg or these other, you know, things I make as well, it's like, it takes a lot to shift that perspective because so much around us is saying, right? And so we really have to resist that to create a different story and and work with it and make something out of it that might reach other people that might yeah build community support people like us and potentially change people's minds outside of that group right like i think it's it's powerful and it's also really hard work and we're not going to be strong every day cuz sometimes the wave knocks us down yeah so we need somebody else at, on a different part of the shore who's not getting hit yeah. to be able to carry us for a little while. And so that's what community really is. And so you might be having a good week or a good month or a good year, and I might not. Yeah. But if we're together and we're all holding hands, we stay up. We stay yes. upright when the wave yes. comes. <laughs> I have this whole thing about resilience and there's this kind of which is which is resilience is powerful and beautiful and and I value resilience and at the same time there's this way that it's kind of celebrated or it puts like the onus on an individual because people will look at me sometimes and say like how did you you know how are you okay and how did you survive all this and I didn't do it by myself right like I have had care I have right. had resources I've had right. access to therapy like that's an incredible privilege and it might have you know saved my life. I had family. I, I was always housed and fed, which are, you know, not something everyone has either. And those also made it better for me, made it safer for me to go through these losses. Right. And so it's not just me. I'm not this like superhero who has survived all of these difficulties. It's been community. It's been other people with similar experiences. It's been people reaching out and supporting me. And I think that's what's made you know, gotten me to this point. And I think that's also where if we see someone who's struggling, it's not because they're not resilient or they're not strong enough or not brave enough. It's like, maybe they don't have the resources and maybe we need to do more to help them. (laughs) Right? Like you're saying, they're down the shoreline and we're not reaching out to them. That's right. That's right. And they may not be okay right now, but they may be there for us later if we're there for them now. And maybe they never will be able to be. And that's okay too. Yeah. That's okay. We, we're, we're all in this together. So I, you know, I'm not a, a huge fan of that whole resilience argument as well. Overcoming. Which, which we call that inspiration porn. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, anyway, um, moving on to, you know, something that you said earlier, just reminded me that I wanted to ask you about this. So as I was looking at a lot of your materials that you put out, I wanted to ask you about this 
whole notion about being an amputee and being disabled because some some people don't equate the two, but you do. And I just want to throw it out there and have a conversation with you about that. Um, why do you connect the two? And, you know, if I might ask, I don't, I'm not asking you to speak for the entire community of amputees, but, you know, could we chat a little bit about what the rationale is in not connecting the two? And, you know, why do you connect them for yourself? Yeah, I find this so interesting. I mean, I find conversations about identity really interesting. Mm -hmm. Most of us have shifted our words that we use or the ways we describe ourselves, you know, over over our lives as we start to figure out what's the right word for this? How what right. feels like the right word, right? Um and so I yeah, I I call myself a disabled person and um, I prefer that over a person with disability for myself. I know that's not even true for everyone in within disability community and within amputees. And this, yes, I can't speak for all. What I have learned so far from other amputees I know, it the, the biggest difference seems to be between those, uh, between congenital amputees and those with acquired um, amputations. And for people born with limb difference, that seems to be most often the preferred term there. It's a limb difference. That's how their body grew. That's the body they've always had and always known. Mm-hmm. And for them, they don't necessarily identify as disabled or encounter that as a disability because it's just always been how they are in the world. Um, whereas for me and and some other people I've talked to who acquire um uh, who lose their limb at some point later in their life, it they identify more strongly as disabled because that shift kind of introduces the challenges that you didn't have before. Um, and so you're now kind of being disabled by something. Um, I mean, the word amputee, presumably like amputate, like to remove something. And if you're born without your limb, it hasn't really been lost. That's just That's just how your body grew. Um, and there's so many ways that our bodies have differences, right? That's just, that's one of them that's out there. Um, so that's where I've had the conversation with people around like disabled or not, that it seems to be more with congenital amputees that it, it they don't identify with that. One thing that I like about using disabled for myself is that it helps me identify and talk about um, what I am disabled by, but what the barriers are for me um, if it's, you know, a flight of stairs or a broken elevator or like whatever the kind of systemic or like circumstantial thing around me that is harder for me than someone without a limb. Um, and those, the, I encounter that stuff all the time. Um, and and that's where when I meet congenital amputees, I'm like, but you still, there's some things that are hard. <laughs> Don't you feel disabled by this stuff that is not designed for you and should be? Um and I don't know if it's it's because, again, kind of growing up with it that they view it differently or they've adapted in a different way. Um, I think sometimes, and again, this is not true for everyone, but there is still, for some people, a resistance to the word disabled um, or disability because that word has been, you know, so much garbage has been attached to it where like culturally mm-hmm. and as a society, we've been told that disabled is a bad thing. So I think sometimes there's also a resistance to be like, well, I'm not disabled. I have this difference, but I'm not disabled. It's because there's so much around us saying 
you don't want to be disabled. <laughs> like there's something negative about that, which is also partly why it's important for me to use it because I'm telling myself and trying to tell others it's not a bad word. It's not. It's, it's, it's this is not assigned some value or merit to right. who I am. It's just an adjective. Um, so I think there's kind of some like messy overlap in there of why some amputees yeah. identify or or don't. Wow. It's, uh, there's so much with language, especially these days. And there's a lot of sensitivity. Um, as you know, we've been talking about language a lot on the podcast lately. Yeah. Uh, you and I talked about that before we hit the record button and we're trying to get it all right, but we just can't possibly get it all right, but we're trying. And mm. it's, um, it's hard as a parent and an ally to the disability community. And I mean, I have my own learning disabilities, but I don't always see myself as disabled, yet somebody with my same exact learning disabilities might consider themselves as somebody with a disability. So it's hard to, it's hard to kind of fathom, you know, yeah. if you have dyslexia and ADD or ADD, ADHD, would you consider yourself somebody with a disability or, you know, somebody with special needs, you know, I mean, right. we, or neurodivergent, I, like I love the neurodiverse term. That's Again, it's this sort really of it's just where, different. that's really where I find myself because yeah. I, I think of myself as somebody who is really um, achieved so I don't personally identify with disability just because I think from my standpoint, it feels very negative. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's just from the era that I'm coming from, you know, just from that time frame. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's just really so individual and it's just really hard. And I, I, I just think we're just never going to come up with one single term. Because <laughs> right. it it's we're touching on so many experiences, right? So there isn't one way to talk about it. Yeah. And it's personal, but I, I find it really interesting. I mean, there's times I don't I don't necessarily like wake up and think I'm disabled. But if I'm out in the world and I get somewhere, I go to a restaurant and I'm trying to meet some friends there. Of course it's COVID, nothing's open in Toronto, but like right. let's say <laughs> and there's a flight of stairs, that's when I suddenly think oh, right, I'm disabled. Oh, right, I only have one leg. I can't get yeah. up there and my friends can. So in that moment, I become disabled and where I wasn't a minute before. And so it sort of like feels like for me, it depends on what I encounter and where I bump into what happened to be my limitations. And we all have limitations. It's just that mine are, you know, there's things that the world is designed around me for like everyone right. of this thing. You know, mobility is, is, a, is a, a big one, yeah. I have a question for you that I don't know. It's kind of a big question. So I don't know if we're going to get through this in a few minutes, but I'm going to try. Okay. So as a fellow mom who's lost a child, um, but I also have a daughter, another daughter, how do you keep your boys alive in your family? Keep the memories alive for your daughter. Now your daughter hasn't, met your boys, right? No. So what do you do in your family? How do you, how do you keep those memories alive? 
I'm figuring out how to do it. My daughter's three and a half now. I have pictures of my sons on the wall and she likes to look at pictures of them and, you know, baby Ford and baby Emmett and they grew in my tummy and she knows I'm their mom and I'm her mom and I can kind of see the wheels turning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she's wrapping her her head around this. Um, and I think it will change as her development and her understanding changes. I'm trying to mostly, I mention them, and but I, I kind of try and see what her questions are. We do on both um, Emmett and Ford's birthdays, we together as a family make them birthday cards. That's and great. Yeah, it's something that I, it's really meaningful to me. For me, it's a moment that I sit and I write to them and I put the letter in there and I, I stamp the envelope and drop it in the mailbox without an address, just <laughs> kind of pay for postage and let Canada Post recycle them for me. But it kind of lets me give it, put it somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And so my daughter like loves this and loves to make cards and is excited. And this year asked if we were going to make a cake because now she's like aware of birthday parties in a new mm-hmm. way, right? And I said, sure, let's make a birthday cake, you know? And so I, which I'd never, I know some people who do that every year for a child and that's not something that for me like resonated, but I, she wanted to do that for the birthday. And so we did. And, and so we do those things and sometimes we stop and look at their photos on the wall and, and she kind of looks at them. But I also, while my, my grief for my sons feels very present, you know, it kind of, comes and goes in in intensity, but I think of them all the time and I miss them all the time. Mm -hmm. I also try not to bring that into her present too Mm -hmm. much. Sure. Because because that's heavy. She doesn't need that weight. It happened before her, you know, it was even a different, like I had a different partner, my ex, and like there was so much that has changed. And so I kind of also don't want it to hang over her in a way. And so we do these, you know, we have these little rituals where we acknowledge their birthdays and we have their photos, but I'm otherwise like, there's something that's been quite beautiful about having her and her grounding me so strongly in the present. Okay. <laughs> the kids can, right? Especially yeah. little kids, like they, they're 100% present moment, right? Um, that, that my sons are sort of like, they're, they've kind of even for myself moved a bit more into like the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay with that because I think she needs, she, you know, she needs to, needs me to be here with her, you know, and not kind of lost in, in the past with them. And so I try to like find that balance, but yeah, there's a couple things we do together and we'll see how it changes. I'm kind of curious how it will unfold as she gets older. Yeah. Well, you have so many talents between your music and your writing and your speaking and your advocacy, what is next for you? What's next on the agenda? I'm dying to know. Well, I'm think I'm working on in the very early stages of another book that will be oh. much more disability focused. Like I touch on, there's like two chapters about losing my leg and the thing about the flower leg in, in this book, but it's so, that work is so present for me right now that that's where my mind is. And so that's going to be the next book. It'll be like part memoir, part journalistic. Um, And then another project that I'm really excited about is I'm producing a series of short animated films also called How to Lose Everything. And they stem from the book. The, The very first film is a passage from the book, but the other four films are by other writers. And each story is about a different experience of loss. And we're using animation because animation is so, you know, it can be 
abstract mm-hmm. in a way that I think really suits grief. It's, you know, the way it moves and shifts and changes shape, like animation fits that so well. Right. So we right. just got a grant to make that. We're making it for CBC Arts here in Canada, and it's a massive project. <laughs> animation is also incredibly laborious. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of, those two things are my next creative, my big creative things will be these short films and and uh, and hopefully this next book. I'm only writing the outline, so I'm like, I'm almost hesitant to say it's happening because I have to make it happen. But as you know, writing a book. Is oh, yes. A of- <laughs> the labor of love. Labor of love, yeah. Yeah. I, I've been halfway through my second book for quite a while now. Uh, it was really tough to get through. Uh, it's uh, got stalled out through the pandemic when everything kind of got turned on its head. So I'm really hoping to pick it back up again soon, but it has been tough. Oh, good. Well, I hope you get to it soon. Thank you. Well, it has been so great to meet you. Do you have any last words of advice for our audience that you would love to share? Make sure that we leave everybody with. Oh, words of advice. The thing that I'm so reluctant to do. The the thing (laughs) you're so reluctant to do, but that you are actually really good at. Mm. Well, when it comes to these big losses or even small losses, whatever the painful thing is for you, that your heartbreak is, um, whether that's connected to disability or, or grief or children, you know, all of the ways that we can have heartbreak. I think my advice, the thing I come back to is that um, to be open to mystery. It's, that's mm-hmm. what's gotten me through my absolute darkest moments, that if I can just remember there's something next that I don't know yet, um, that's helped me move forward. And so if, if people are not sure how anything is possibly going to work out or how it might not ever change. If you can think there's, there's some mystery out there that might, uh, that might carry you through. My favorite word yet. Mm. Well, that, that is wonderful. I love ending on that note. Thank you so much, Krista. It has been fabulous spending this hour with you. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. I am so lucky that I get to meet such wonderful people on this podcast. So have a lovely evening and thank you so much, everybody. Um, So the book is How to Lose Everything and I hope that you check it out. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.